Good morning, everybody. I have to say, I really enjoy sitting in the front row because I can hear you all singing, and you guys sounded great. That was awesome. Thank you for uh, sharing that with me. I, I really enjoyed that. So, first thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about my haircut. Um, not because it's extra special or because I did anything wild, but because on Friday I went and got a haircut. I know, it looks good. Thank you. Um, it was different than usual. Usually I have a very gorgeous woman uh, who I really, really like cut my hair. Her name is Katie. That's my wife, if you're new. That's not somebody we need to talk about. But this week we decided, Katie said, let's try something out. Let's go to a stylist, um, see if we can do something new. And if you look at me and you go, I don't see anything new, it's because, well, your pastor is a little bit of a chicken. And so I went with the same haircut again. However, uh, I got to meet a nice lady. Um, she is a Hispanic lady who has been a hairdresser for 17 years. And we got to chatting like you do when you get your hair cut. Um, us guys, it's not as long as some of you ladies have at the salon, but we had a good 30-minute conversation. And at one point in the conversation, after she had said she'd done, uh, done hair for 17 years, I said, oh, I used to be a school teacher, and I, I was a school teacher for like 16 years. And she asked the question, well, why did you switch? And right there at that moment, if you could have just paused time, there was a, there was a battle going on in my head. Because I'm sitting here in this place where this lady that I've been talking to now for all of maybe six or seven minutes, who I don't know who she is. I don't know what she's about. I don't know what her religion is. I don't know if the words that come to mind, the truth of what happened in my life, which is God closed a door at a job I never thought I would leave and opened up a job that I never want to leave ever again as your pastor. And I could have said that. I could have said, you know, God closed a door and God opened a door and it was amazing and it was so clear and all that. But I was having this internal struggle of going, well, I don't want to hurt her feelings. I don't want to offend her. What if she's, you know, what? I just had this back and forth. And if you took a little teeny snapshot of that, like two seconds in my brain, I was chasing all of these bunnies of, do I say something? Do I not? Do I say something? Do I not? And of course, I'm saying this story, so I didn't not say something. I did say something. Uh, I'll still say stories, stories that will make me look bad. You'll catch some as we go. But not on this story. Because I did say, the Lord led me to a new job. And she goes, well, what's that? And I said, a pastor. And so I did get to talk to her a little bit about Jesus. And it was interesting how when I, when I just told the truth, because that's what it was. I mean, God controlled every single aspect of my life, including that. As soon as the truth got out there, it just kept coming. It just kept coming. And our conversations went, went back and forth. And, you know, it's not a happy ending yet, you know, because she hasn't come to know the Lord and she hasn't come to church and she hasn't done all those things. But it was the best 30 minutes that I had with somebody who didn't know the Lord on that day. And just think about how different it would have been if I just would have said, oh, you know, I just decided teaching wasn't for me. And now I do a public speaking job with a group of people on Sundays. And... <laughs> They all show up, and, and it's great. So this is going to tie into what we're talking about today, because today's passage is the next portion after the Beatitudes. And if you want to go ahead and turn there, it's Matthew 5, 13 through 16. I'm going to go ahead and read it, even though we're going to read it as we go through. I do want to read it so we get it. Because this is the conclusion to the sermon, um, to the conclusion to the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Christ says. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, 
how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is the word of the Lord. So this is kind of the the conclusion of the Beatitudes. If you remember our Beatitudes, our Beatitudes started off with our need and how we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when we get to that point, the Lord satisfies us and then He rebuilds us, if you will, through those last few Beatitudes to make us to the point where we end up with persecution like we talked about last week. So where we're at now is, well, what do we do with that? How do we make sense of that? See, when we, we, we see last week's beatitude, which is persecution's coming, and it's going to be blessed persecution because it's persecution because of Christ and persecution because of righteousness, our gut is sometimes to pull out and say, no, I'm done. We're going to go away. We're going to start up our own little communes. We're going to do our own thing away from the persecution. And Jesus sees that, and so he goes right into this immediately following the persecution so that we know it's not something to avoid. And as a matter of fact, the more we're out there, the more the persecution is likely. Because to live the kingdom lifestyle, we are going to attract attention, even if it sometimes comes in the form of opposition. So we see these metaphors today. We see salt and we see light. And I got to tell you, the salt part was a struggle because there's lots of ways that this is interpreted. But when we look at the last verse, and it says, in this same way, this, this same way. So salt and light go together. They teach the same thing in this passage. And so this is what this passage is teaching us today. Kingdom people are distinctive in their actions because of their character. Or if you want to kind of put this in, in where we've been, the, the actions are our public lives It's the salt and light that we're talking about today. And the reason we have these actions is because of the Beatitudes, because of our private lives. When we start by recognizing, I am poor in spirit. I mourn over my sins and the sins of the world, which makes me meek. And I go, I can't do it, Lord. So I hunger and thirst for the righteousness that I need. And the Lord steps in and satisfies. And then He comforts us. And He extends mercy to us. And helps us when the persecution comes. And so this is the picture that we see. Jesus is moving from the here's who you are to here's what you do with it. The Beatitudes can kind of give us this impression of passivity. To sit back and let things happen. Whereas salt and light correct that misunderstanding. It says this is going to be out there. Salt permeates and performs its vital function in our society by being in the society. The light illuminates the darkness and points people to the source of light. So the first thing we see is, well, the first thing I see in here that we need to see about this section is what it tells us about the world. What's the character of the world like according to this section? Well, the first thing we see is that it is a putrefying. It is a, a place that is dying. It's a place that's decaying. It's also a dark place. See, we need to remember that according to God's Word, there is no vestigial leftover place on earth where everybody is good or everything is sinless. There's no place like that anywhere. 
You can't go, oh, you know, if only we'd move out of Gladstone or if only we'd leave Oregon City and we move to, I don't know, Canby. Maybe that's where all the good people are. Well, it's clearly not Canby, so it's Texas. Let's move to Texas. Everything's bigger there. Maybe the Christians are too. Or maybe it's, I want to go buy an island. I want to win the lottery. you got to play it first, but maybe there's a chance, right? So I, go, I want to go have an island. I'm going to just put people on there that I know are Christians. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to start sinning, and they're going to start abusing, and it's going to be bad. Because there's no place on earth that is not in complete darkness aside from the light of Christ. And we need to understand that that's the same for our hearts, that the human heart is dark without the light of Christ in them. So this world is a dark place with no light of its own. This world is a deteriorating, decaying place with no way of stopping the decay on their own. So we need an external source of light. We need salt. Let's look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I like what the message says here. It says, you're here to be salt seasoning to bring out the God flavors of this earth. But if you lose your usefulness, you'll end up in the garbage. I think that works pretty well. So the first thing we see here is we see Jesus making a declaration. This declaration is really clear. He says, you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples. Remember, this does not mean the 12, so it's not the varsity. This is all the people that are following Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount. He hasn't pulled the 12 out of them yet. He won't do that till chapter 10. So these are all followers of Jesus, which is what many of you are right now. So he's talking to you. Next thing he says is, you are. Not you could be, not you should be, not you ought to be. Instead, you are. See, this is the gospel in miniature right here. He says, I've already done the work. This is what you are. You are the salt of the earth. It's done, not do. He doesn't say, go work at being the salt. He says, you are the salt, be the salt. Jesus is not urging the disciples to do something new and be something they're not. Instead, he's telling them, this is who you are as kingdom people. Be who you are in the world. One commentator says, there are 11 different ways you can apply the salt metaphor to your life. Don't worry, we're not going through all 11. Because honestly, Jesus, Jesus was God, so he probably had way more than 11 ways to apply it. But For the people he was speaking to, the most likely thing was preservation. Because salt was used to preserve meat. They would would massage it into meat to keep it from going bad, to keep it from decaying. There was no refrigeration. There was nothing of that kind. And so that's what salt was used for. As a matter of fact, wars were fought over access to salt in the ancient world. I read a book one time, and I, I got so many weird looks when I was at the gym on the elliptical reading a book, and it was called The History of Salt. Um, and, and literally, there was a history book about this big about salt. You know, and, and you'd think, well, that seems pretty boring, but actually, it was really interesting. Maybe I'm just weird. But this preservation, what we are called to be as salt when we are in the world is we are a preserving. We are a preserving group. We are a group that stops the decay. We are a group that prevents the moral decay. 
It's a preserving force that says wherever you are, you are to help stop the decay because of of who you are and who you serve. See, the world needs kingdom people in it and is better because of them, just like salt makes the world a better place. We use salt now because of refrigeration for seasoning. We use it for making things taste better. And maybe that's what Jesus means. But, but either way, it is all about preserving. It's about making the place a better place. One author writes, is as if Jesus was saying, humanity without me is a dead body that's rotting and falling apart. And you, as my followers, are the salt that must be rubbed into the flesh to stop the decomposition. So then... What, what does that mean for us? Well, the next question I have after what is Jesus declaring is, who, who does it apply to? And he says, it affects the whole world. Look at the phrase, you are the salt of Israel. You are the salt of Palestine. See, that would have made sense to his hearers. They're sitting there and they're going, wait, of the earth, of, of everywhere? We are the salt of everywhere? And you count around and you're going, okay, we've got a hundred or so followers. How is that going to work, Jesus? I mean, it makes sense to say we might be able to affect Israel, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says the whole earth. We see this later in in the parable of the mustard seed when Jesus says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, and when it grows, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air may come and make nests in its branches. And what Jesus is saying here is it starts small, but it goes big, and then the world comes to it. That's what the birds represent in there. See, Jesus is saying, yeah, we may be a small group sitting on a hill outside of, in Israel, but yet we're going to affect the world because of the power of the salt, the power of the light, which comes from the one who is in us. Forget about the Caesars and the Herods and the philosophers the world doesn't need more YouTube stars or celebrities or, or, or accomplished actors and actresses and musicians. Instead, he needs ordinary people who know an extraordinary God. And that extraordinary God who lives inside of them is on full display to the world, to the watching world. I love what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, salt is essentially different from the medium in which it's placed. In a sense, it exercises all of its qualities by being different. If salt is absorbed into the thing, it doesn't do any good. But salt still says salt when you put it in something, and it makes that thing better. It makes the thing sweeter. It makes the thing tastier, and it preserves it. So we see that this is Jesus saying, you are this, not you have to become this. And then he says, this is to go to the entire world. But then he issues a warning. And Jesus's warning is this. He says, if you lose your taste, if you lose what makes you salt, better watch out. And like the message says, it will be thrown out into the garbage. That word taste there probably is better translated as purpose because if you look later, it says taste and then it says it's saltiness. What it's saying is what makes you salt needs to stay around. It needs to not go away. It can't be restored. It says no longer good. The Phillips translation says completely useless, as in worthy to go throw in the garbage. Now, if you have, if you paid attention in, in chemistry class, you know that salt is a stable compound and it does not actually go away. There's no way to make salt any less salty. 
I, I, there's, there's ways if you get like a thousand degrees and you throw salt and their salt will come apart, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. So how is it that salt could lose its saltiness? Well, most of the salt in Israel was taken from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the sea where all the rivers flowed to, including the Jordan. It's below sea level. It is famous to this day because it is incredibly salty. So salty, in fact, you could go out and lay on it and not sink, even with weights put on you. It is so full of salt. All of the runoff from all the mountains and all the rivers have run there and deposited and the water gets evaporated, so it's super hyper salty. So when they would get the Dead Sea salt, there were two ways to do it. One way took a lot of time and was really expensive. And what they would do is they would take out the water, they'd set it out in an open area, let the water evaporate, then you'd get chunks of salt, and then you'd have to work it and try to break it apart, and so on. It was a whole lot easier to just skim the water, let the water drain out, and dump whatever comes out and call it salt. The problem with that is the Dead Sea is full of all sorts of other things besides salt. And so when you got Dead Sea salt, if it wasn't that more expensive kind, you got it with all sorts of impurities in it. So you would go to use it on something, and what would happen is salt stays with the liquid, and so usually it slides right on out of whatever you're putting it into, and so you're left with sand or dirt or other minerals, no salt. And so this losing of saltiness means to be defiled. It means to let other things come in and be a part of what you are and how you act. See, when salt gets diluted, it becomes useless. And this is the temptation we all face on a daily basis. Popular culture is very, very against what it means to be a Christian. And so for us, we have the temptation to say, okay, we'll just leave culture. We'll just get out of culture. We'll hide over here and not be a part. But we need to remember the parable of the talents. Remember the ungrateful servant who God gave talents to him, and instead of going out and using them, he hides them. And he says, you wicked servant. See, we are not to fall into that trap. That's the first trap that we see with salt, is that we sometimes go, well, the world's against us, so I'm going to hide away. The other trap is that we go, you know, we need to kind of package this a little bit better. And so I'm going to talk to the world and say, world, what, what do you want to see from me as a Christian? And then I'll package it this way, and then I'll give it to you, and you'll choose to be a Christian. The problem with that is you're asking someone who is blind and doesn't know the truth to decide what truths they want. And it's never going to be, hey, you know what? Can, can you Christians, can you help me be convicted of my sins? Can you tell me that I'm going to hell? Can you tell me that the wrath of God is on me if I don't repent? Because that would make my day. And that's not what we're going to see if we try to package Christianity to get people to want to flock to it. Because we're missing the point. The point is not to package Christ so that people want Him. It's to show off the real Christ So the Holy Spirit points them to who really is going to save them, not some package deal that we put together to try to win the community. We cannot package the message to make the world like it. It will not work. So we are, the the, the point here of this salt is to we are to be out in the world. We are to be visible to the world in public. It's a warning against covering up who we actually are. See, a few weeks ago, we talked about be who you are. 
Be who you are. If you're a follower of Christ here today, it is your job to be that follower of Christ everywhere you go. You go to Safeway, you go to Walmart, you go to Whole Foods, you go to Clackamas Town Center. Wherever you go, you are to take Christ with you. And He's supposed to be clearly seen by all. It is not something we put on just for our Sunday morning, like our Sunday morning best. Instead, it's something that goes with us everywhere. We're called to be a morally disinfectant, moral disinfectant to this world. But we can't do it if we don't get out of the salt shaker. We can't do it if we say, I'm only going to be in places where it's comfortable, it's easy to be a Christian. Instead, we've got to go out into the world. And when we're in the world, we need to be that salt. Jesus is saying, be who you are. Remember who you are. Remember that you are poor in spirit and you've mourned over your sin and the world's sin and you are meek. You can't save yourself. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And I'm hungry for that righteousness and He satisfies and gives it to me. That's who I am. And if that's true now, it needs to be true all the time. So it's easy to say though at this point to go, You know, okay, I get it, Pastor John. I just need to be more salty, right? I just need to be more salt. I gotta just work so much harder because my, my, my message is not there and I just gotta try a little bit harder. And since I can't quite get as salty as I need to be and there's not revival happening because of all the people I'm interacting with, I feel guilt and I'm beating myself up about it. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is be who the Lord has you as right now, continually hungering and thirsting for righteousness and continually pursuing Him and He will take care of the results. You must be faithful. The second group in this is the group that goes, well, I'm not as salty as so-and-so, so why even try? Why even try? Why, why, why you know, I, I can't be as salty as that person, or, you know, my salt isn't that great just yet, so I'll just kind of put it off, and I'll just, you know, do the Scarlet O'Hare thing, and I'll think about that tomorrow. That's not the way to do it either. As a matter of fact, it's not my job to stand up here and make you feel bad about not being salty. It's my job to go, you're salt. Go be salt. Be that salt to the world. Jesus doesn't say, work harder, get the salt, then go get the world. He goes, no, you are salt. If you're following Christ, if you're a believer, if you are chasing hard after Him, you're salt. Go be salt. Be who you are. Verse 14, He doesn't let us just stop there. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus here declares that we are the light of the world. Literally, that word you is the Greek word meaning you and you alone. Nobody else is the light of the world. It is you. You have the only light source on this planet. There's no other light. There's no little bit of light over here. Well, this group over here is kind of right, and so they have a little bit of light. And this group over here, yeah, they're the... No, there's no light. You and you alone are the light. This word light in the Greek means light from the sun, meaning illuminates everything. It's used throughout the Bible in the Psalms and Matthew, John, Isaiah 42 has a really popular place for, for the light discussion. But here in the Old Testament and the New, light is always opposite of filth. It means purity. Light is always opposite of error and ignorance, meaning truth and knowledge. Light is always the opposite 
of abandonment by God. Instead, it is the presence of God. Light always represents that. This world is dark, and without the light, it will maintain its darkness. You know, this last week, I took my wife uh, for our anniversary, went to Eastern Oregon. We drove during the day, but I remember a time when I was driving home from Eastern Oregon, and you get up there in the mountains, and you pull over, and you turn your lights off, and you look up, and the stars are just as bright as all get out. You ever done that? You ever stopped and seen that darkness? And then you can kind of hear it, and around the corner, oh, there's a car with its lights on. I can't see anything now. I can't see anything. Let the lights go down so I can see those stars popping. I remember when I was a kid, my parents took me to the Oregon Caves down in southern Oregon. And you go through these caves, and they have it all lit up, and there's all these different colors. And at some point, the tour guide goes, I want to show you guys something. Watch this. And they push a remote, and it goes pitch black. I heard some of you say, no way, right? It's so dark, you can wave your hand in front of your face, and you can't even see it. That's the darkness our world is in. My son and I, we, we listen to a podcast that talks about uh, interesting uh, stories and things like that. Uh, and they, they kind of break them down and tell you what actually happened. There was a story one time of a cave diver, which I thought a cave diver was just somebody who dove into water in caves, like you know, free diving. But instead, it's people that put on scuba gear, and then they go underground, underwater, for miles on ends explain, exploring caves which sounds like a terrible idea. But even worse than that is when they get in the caves, if they aren't watching how fast they kick their feet, they will actually have what's called a silt out, which doesn't sound like fun. Silt is the, the, the layer of dust that gets on the bottom of these caves because the water eats the, eats the way at the, the rock and it makes a layer of dust. And if they kick too hard, the dust kicks up so much that it basically makes them so they can't see anything. You can put your hand on your goggles and you can barely make out your hand. The silt is so thick. And so they're stuck in there and the panic sets in and they swim straight up into the top of the cave. Or they swim the wrong direction and they run out of water. Or run out of air. they got plenty of water. Run out of air. That's where our world is. This darkness is so disorienting and the world is stuck in it that they're going all different directions. Is that not the truth? Do you not see that? We're going to try this way. Well, that one didn't work. Let's do the complete opposite. Well, that one didn't work. Let's try this one again. That's our world's mindset. See, we need to understand that this darkness is extensive. It is everywhere. And the problem with it is that the world can't see the truth. They can't distinguish one object from another. You ever been in a pitch black room and you're walking and you're like, absolutely, I know this path is clear. And then you find out otherwise with your big toe. You can't distinguish a little teeny thing. And I mean, we're, let's be honest. I'll be honest. You know, it's a little teeny thing, but it, man, it knocked. I mean, you're like, I just got shot. I'm dying. Call the ambulance because you stubbed your toe. But see, this is where our world is. Our world cannot make out anything in this darkness. They are completely, completely in the dark. So much so that they call up down. They say things that are evil are good. They say when we stand for things that are stand against things that are immoral, they call us immoral. They say when we stand for righteousness, that we're the evil ones. This moral darkness is compounded by the fact that the world goes to other people in darkness to find out how to get out of the darkness. I'm in darkness. Okay, well, let's ask the most popular psychiatrist. Let's ask the most popular talk show. Let's ask the most popular actor, actress, athlete. 
They're in darkness, and you're going to have the blind leading the blind. And so this is where we come in. We are called to be the light. Now, as you read this, if you know your Bible, if you've read you know, the book of John recently, you recognize there's a, maybe a problem here. And the problem is this, is that John 8, 12 says, Jesus says, he is the light. I am the light of the world. Okay, contradiction. Bible contradicts itself. You're all free to go. The Bible doesn't make sense. Let's go. Well, no, that's not what's going on here. And let me show you. I'll show you in John because John actually has it pretty clearly. John 9, 5 says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So this is Jesus saying, I am the light of the world as long as I'm here. So he's kind of opened the door a little bit to maybe there's another light. Look at John 12. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. What Jesus is saying here is Jesus was here on earth for a limited amount of time, about 33 years. He was the light and he was the brightest light anyone ever saw. And because of what he did here on earth, he has adopted us into his family and has made us children of the light, meaning little lights that now show the light of the greater light. Jesus is the true light. Ephesians 5.8 says, At one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So what's being said here is that you are not the source of the light. Okay, The light does not come from us, but it emanates from the one who's inside of us. The one who we have given our life to. The one who made us sons and daughters of the King. It's emanating from us, not originating from us. And this starts with the Beatitudes. We saw this. It started with us getting ourselves to a place where we are not strong in spirit. We're not mighty. Instead, we're poor. We recognize how bad it is, how bad we are. And we let Christ come in and satisfy us. But first, we must come to Christ. Think about that, that, that picture I told you of being up on the mountain and how dark it is and how you can see the stars and it's just amazing. Now imagine if you have a full moon. If you've ever been out where there's no light other than the moon, even though it's not much light with a full moon, it still lightens everything up. I'd much rather, if I'm out in the forest by myself, have a full moon than no moon. Now imagine if the sky was full of moons. How many moons would we need? I'm sure some scientist somewhere has figured this out. How many moons would we need in order to have a pretty comparable brightness like the sun? And I love that picture because the moon has no light in its own. It only has light as it reflects the sun. And he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So first the disciples were warned, don't lose your saltiness. Now they're encouraged. He says, you can't hide it. If you have the light, you can't hide it. A city on a hill does not sneak up on anybody. It's up there. Just like when you are out in the, out in the dark and it's dark and you're just driving on that two-lane road, you can start to see the light reflecting off the clouds from a city that may be miles and miles away. Even with thick darkness, the closer a person comes to us, the closer they should be to the light. But light not only reveals what's hidden in the darkness, it also explains the darkness. 
which is one of the things that we see that if everything was in light, you wouldn't know there was light. But instead, the fact there's no darkness points to the fact that there is a light. There is light. And we as Christians are the only ones that have it. See, all the problems of this world, whether they are national, international, or personal, right in this room, all come from sin. John 3.19 says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. When Christians make peace with the world to avoid persecution or to gain acceptance, they have rendered themselves impotent to do what they're made to do. We are to be who we are supposed to be. Be who we are. But we cannot do that if we're going to make peace with the world. When we're going to gain acceptance from the world. Verse 15, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now what Jesus is talking about here is he's not talking about when your wife gets a candle from Bath and Body Works that has a terrible smell and you accidentally put the cap on it, okay? He's not saying, not that I've never done that, okay? But what he's saying is, is you're lighting the whole room. How ridiculous would it have been during our ice storm when we, all of our batteries have run out and we're sitting there and we have a nice big candle and we're like, well, I don't need any light right now. Put it on top of there you're going to start running into things and stubbing your toes again. And we've already talked about that. It's a bad thing. How ridiculous is that? And Jesus points to that. And that's what we see here. Jesus is warning. He says, how preposterous that people would hide this light. You have a light. You can't snuff it out. Snuffing it out is ridiculous. Why would you do it? How ridiculous would a city on a hill think it could be hidden? How ridiculous to put a light under a basket. If we're truly Christian, we cannot be hid, said Martin Lloyd-Jones. Put it a different way, the contrast between us and others is something which is to be quite self-evident and perfectly obvious. A lamp is useless under a basket. There's nothing worse, again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, there's nothing worse in this universe than a merely formal Christian, one who does not share their light. Notice it says, it gives light to all. That ties back to verse 14 where he says, the whole world. And it's looking forward to Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission. Go into all the world making disciples. If we have the tendency to put the light under a bushel, it makes us start to question, do we actually have the light in the first place? Because if we have the light, we can't possibly hide it. Our presence in this world is to expose the world for what it is. We'll find that we're not very popular sometimes by doing that, but it is what we are to do. Verse 16, in the same way. So this is a a summary phrase. It means because of what I just said. So he is saying the salt and the light go together right here, and here's what we're to do with it. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So now Jesus gives us the imperative. He gives us the command. He says, let your light shine. Let your salt say, stay salty. Put it out there. Let who you are as a kingdom person influence your public life. It is who you are, not what you do. That is the key. Put it out there. And then we see this phrase here. It says, you may see your good works. This means good labor. And so what Jesus is getting at is not only we're declaring with our mouth Christ, but our works come along and they, they, they buffet it. They lift up what we've said. 
based on our works. Our works match what we've said. A good example of this is Titus 3, and this is a longer quote. You can turn there if you want, or it'll be on the screen. Titus 3 is where Paul is laying out, here's what you were, here's what God did, and then here's the response. And he gives us that perfect picture, because these good works do not precede who we are in Christ. They come from who we are in Christ. Look at Titus 3, 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So Paul's saying, here are the things you should do. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He says, these are the actions you used to do. These are the actions you should be known for now. And then verse 4, but... But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done in us by righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. See, we've got to get it in the right, the right order. We are made new in Christ. The light now comes and resides in me, and the good works are the light being on display for all to see. It's the light being out for everyone to see. See, Christ is the light. When we do the works that he says we should do, it is proof that the light is in us. It's proof that he is working on our hearts. But see, here's the thing, and this is where we struggle. Just like when I was getting my hair cut, I'm tempted to just be nice and be kind and be good and be a, 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 a nice person because there doesn't seem like there's all, a lot of them out there. And I think that's enough. The problem is that with that is there, there, there's a big issue here. Remember when I told you earlier, I said the world is in darkness and the world needs the light and the light is Christ. And you go out into the world and you show the light, but you don't point to Christ. What you are preaching is a false gospel with your goodness. I mean, catch this. I walk out, if I sat down with that lady as she was cutting my hair and I was just really kind, she would go, you know, that redeems my hope with humanity. We're not that bad after all. Translation, I don't need Jesus. There's good people out there. I could be good someday. Do you see how abominable that is? That is the opposite of the gospel. So when we are out there and we're being kind and we're being good, we must point to Christ. Because it's worthless. It's worse than worthless. It's preaching the lie of the devil, which is, you don't need God to be good. Yeah, you may have just murdered somebody, but you're not that bad, really. You're fine. Just keep going. You didn't mean it. That's the world's lie. The world's lie is we are good, and there's good people, but some people are kind of mean sometimes, but really they're good underneath it all. Jesus says, no, there's no, not one. The wages of sin is death. Every single one is fallen. See, look at what it says here in 16. It doesn't say they may see your good works and believe there's a God out there and, and, and be fine. It says, see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father. How are they going to know He's your Father if you don't let them know? My dad's name's Larry. Nobody in here knew that 
until I let you know. So get this. You cannot walk around being a good, kind person and people are just going to figure it out themselves. See, God is the ultimate author of all the good things in our lives. And we don't give Him enough enough glory, enough credit. We are to remove the veil of the Father's face. And we're going to say, oh, you think I'm good? My dad's way better. Look at my heavenly Father. He is way better than that. There's a Latin phrase that says, contra mundum pro mundo. It means against the world, for the world. We are to be against the way the world views goodness and kindness to save the world. We cannot do it apart from Christ. We need to change how we view success. Kingdom success is being faithful to Christ in every aspect of my life. Not getting ahead and getting a nicer house and more money or more success or more friends or more people in our church. It's about being faithful to the calling on my life, which is shine your light. See, people only get to heaven. People only get to know Christ by having Christ named. It's not, they don't figure it out themselves. Yes, you can figure out by looking at the universe that there's a God. Yes, you can figure out that if, you know, there's, a, there's equations and there's, there's arguments that prove that there's a God, but you will never get to there was a Jesus Christ on your own aside from the Holy Spirit and the light that we are to display. But don't take my word for it. Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You must confess Jesus. But Paul gets this. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 14. How then will they call on him, Jesus, in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him if they have never heard? And how are you to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good word. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. They must hear Christ in us or they're not saved. Or they are going to hell. Do you grab that? We have the light and we cover it up and we just are okay with, hey, you know, they know I'm a nice person and they'll kind of work their way to, oh, Jesus. That's not the way it works. The way it works is my light points to them and the words out of my mouth point to Him in everything we do. So do people see Christ in you? Or do they see the world just a tamped down version? Both of these metaphors are communicating the same thing. We are heralds of this new kingdom. So what can we learn from this? Well, fundamentally Christians and non-Christians are completely different. We are completely different. We are to be different. We are not to blend in. We are to stick out. If you're in this room and you are not a Christian and this is something you're trying out, recognize that you are in darkness. And there's a reason why. The the world totally gets that they're in darkness. But they think by staying in the darkness, they can get out of the darkness. That's the cave diver swimming deeper in the cave hoping he finds a way out. There is no way out. You are in darkness. The good news is is that the God who made you provided a way for you to get out of the blindness, get out of the darkness. There is good in this world. There is beauty. There is salvation, but it's found only in Jesus Christ. 
This also means that we can't be undercover Christians. We can't be anonymous. In fact, when we are anonymous and we're just being good people, we're doing as much harm as good because we're preaching a false gospel. Four, we cannot hide our light if we have it. Because being a Christian means your light is on display. That's what it means. The word Christian means little Christ. Just like the moon is a little sun. It's reflecting the sun. That's what we are to be. So my final is be who you are. In light of the Beatitudes, in light of who God has made you, be who you are. Thus the kingdom norms of verses 3-12 through are worked out in us, the kingdom heirs, so we have a witness Verses 13 to 16. If salt exercises the negative function of decaying, delaying decay and warning, it'll help the world. It fixes the world. Then light is the positive, illuminating, sin-darkened world now has to confront the light. We cannot withdraw. We cannot hold it to our own. We must display it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book about this verse and the verses right before it. And this is what he said. He says, as a Christian, flight into invisibility is a denial of the call. Meaning, keeping Jesus to myself and not sharing him, being an invisible Christian, is a denial of what it means to be a Christian. He said, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself from, hide himself from the world has ceased to follow him. I mean, get that. If we don't follow Jesus and make him on display, we're not following Jesus. I think Bonhoeffer nails it. So today we are going to celebrate. We're going to remember the death of Jesus on our behalf. We're going to remember his resurrection on our behalf. We're going to remember his ascension on our behalf. And as we do this, ask yourself, am I showing Christ off to the world around me? Is he something that somebody would go, oh, I never knew they were a Christian if they came to your funeral? Or is it so obvious that the people around you go, oh, there comes a Christian. We've got to watch what we're saying. Oh, we can't talk about that. They're a Christian. No more undercover Christians. Christ was murdered in public, public display. And yet we hide that and don't display it. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Paul was the picture of that light shining, wasn't he? After he saw Jesus, his life was totally different. And that's where we need to be. So in a moment here, I'm going to have the musicians come up. You guys are going to play during communion for us. Um, As we do that, take a moment. Ask the Lord to show you where your light's not shining. And then if you want to, you can come down here. We've got the elements here. Let's walk down these aisles and walk back. We've also got some in the back there so you can reach it there. And there's some up on the balcony as well. And as we do that, take, take this opportunity to let the Lord do a work on your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would show the light, Lord. 
that, Lord, we would be the salt, that we would be in this world and be different, that we would not lose our distinctiveness, that we would not lose our saltiness, and that we would not cover up our light. So, Lord, I pray right now that you would begin to work on us. Show us where we are lacking in this. Lord, give us the courage we need because, Lord, we need it. It is, it is scary to share you sometimes because we've seen how people react. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us courage. I pray that you'd give us a love for you that we couldn't help but share. We couldn't help but talk about you. Lord, be blessed in us now. In your name, amen.